in general, uh, most, most materials used in building in some form or another use water. So it's a very important integral part of the building process. That's Afia Wilcox. She is an architect. What does our material choices mean? We really have to think about the overall life cycle of what a building means. Afia is passionate about cultivating a new normal in architecture and design, one that does the least possible harm to the planet. I'm sure there are people who feel like they are sustainable cities, but I also think that what happens in one space cannot um, just be copied somewhere. Um, We all have contexts, we have different socioeconomic landscapes, we have different climatic conditions that need to be sorted out differently. This podcast is brought to you by Jojo a proud supporter of South Africa's water activists and a proud supplier of water solutions for a better quality of life. By protecting our most precious resource, Jojo's quality products help to safeguard the well-being of people, communities and the environment. Please enjoy today's episode, a celebration of all things water and the people working tirelessly to protect it. This is For Water For Life, the podcast that tells extraordinary stories of ordinary people and water. They've made it their mission to preserve, purify and protect the water supply where we live, in a water-scarce and unequal country called South Africa. I'm Kukule Tumlungo. And I'm Michelle Constant. But it's all about Afia, who works from an architectural practice in Johannesburg. And she clearly likes to keep busy because she's also doing a doctorate on affordable housing in the city's historic Alexandra Township. Architects like Afia are envisioning better societies by providing better environments for people, particularly people whose voices are not being heard. She believes there needs to be more conversation about architecture in Africa and how we can develop sustainable societies. We do have a number of of examples within the Johannesburg CBD that are built, you know, within kind of from 1950s to the 1980s, where they're very solid concrete structures. This is where we speak about the ego of the permanence of architecture, where these buildings are built to withstand hurricanes and earthquakes. Downtown Johannesburg is a concrete jungle built on what was dusty farmland. The discovery of gold in 1886 transformed it into a business hub with shops, finance houses, banks and mining companies littering the CBD. Today, this pan-African South African microcosm is home to street trading amongst grand colonial-style buildings and bank cities. Humanity bustles through its downtown taxi ranks and alongside Muti markets next to 80s glass high-rises and brutalist constructions from the 60s. We speak about the ego of permanence in architecture, especially in something like concrete, where we decide that actually we want buildings that will live forever. 
it is a Western concept, but it is also very much a you know a capitalist construct that if you have a building, you want it to last forever because you want your brand name to last forever. Concrete is a rock-solid material that has been used to manipulate bodies of water through the construction of large dams and to shape progressive inner-city landscape completely. But concrete is only concrete because of water. If you look at just the materiality of buildings, for instance, water is always, in most cases, it's always part of the process. So something like concrete, you need to have your aggregate, you have your cement, and then you also add water in order to create that concrete. It's similar to uh, that of clay bricks. You, would, uh, you then add the water to kind of change the moisture content so that you can actually um, form bricks. And even something like timber, you know, in order to grow trees, you need water. And trees are also used as part of the construction process. Even water is used as part of the, the process of curing steel as well. Um, it's not as much a part of the process because the steel itself doesn't have water inside it, but part of the process of manufacturing steel also needs water. So in general, uh, most, most materials used in building, in some form or another, use water. So it's a very important integral part of the building process. Concrete gets its strength from a chemical reaction and was created to withstand the elements, the material of human progress. But you have to be sensitive and make sure that whatever you're creating is going to really react to your environment and the climatic conditions of, of what is happening around you. And I think that is something that is not also spoken enough about. It's about a look rather than what is really happening within the building. However, there is a shift in terms of what that means from a stylistic point, but also from a sustainability point. So I think in terms of where we are now is we're trying to create buildings that evolve with climate and that evolve with a sensitivity to, you know, where the sun angles come in, where, where warmth of the building is kept. The poured concrete structures of brutalist architecture were popular across the continent, especially in West Africa and Southern Africa. This style of building emerged in the 1950s out of the early 1900s modernist movement. Brutalist buildings are large, monolithic and block-like structures designed with a rigid geometric style. And I think brutalist architecture, from my perspective, was about creating this permanent look as opposed to really reacting to, to what the environment was doing around it. Steel and concrete have allowed for buildings that are bigger and can fit more in, but there's a change of thinking. Concrete is used most of the time with its pile foundations or uh, pad foundations. You know, it is a great material for, for the foundations of the building, but now designers are, are being challenged to really think about their use of material and how it was going to affect the environment that people live in. The concrete structures of the Joburg CBD present many drawbacks for water conservation. The 
When we look at water flow in cities, we look at an urban planning scale. And that means we are looking at number one, what water sources we have. Um, within the city. So if we look at Johannesburg, it was based on, on, on essentially mine dumps, but a lot of cities are formed around rivers in the first place as a water source. We look at where our water sources are and then we generally, historically, cities are almost built around water sources. And then what happens is with things like uh, more built up urban areas, you have a lot of hardened surfaces. So those, that is concrete or, or brick structures and they have runoff and that runoff goes into stormwater drainage. So we need to be able to shift water from one side of the city essentially to another. And we have to be able to allow for water to move through our cities so that it doesn't flood essentially. margins of Johannesburg, situated on the banks of the Yuxke River, we find Alexandra, one of South Africa's largest townships and poorest urban areas. It's a place that's rich in political and cultural history, but the jam-packed population are exposed to the dramatic impacts of Johannesburg's notorious summer storms. What happens is if you have poor access to housing, you have poor access to services, and you know that is related to all sorts of very dangerous living conditions. And in a place like Alexander, for instance, you have the Yuske River, and there's a lot of street life. It's a big uh, informal settlement that sits alongside this river source. So the new rural to urban migration, in most cases in Johannesburg, looks like informal settlements. So Afia's PhD work is a study of a development in the K206 settlement in the heart of Alex, where the province developed housing projects and a mental health clinic. So for instance, in Alexander, you have people who are living on a floodline. So this is now a situation where when it rains, people will lose their entire homes, their livelihoods. And, and in many cases, people die from just being in very dangerous conditions. However, people need access to jobs and opportunities. and what happens with these water systems. So for instance, in the case of the Yuske River, the water system, which is a water, water bed, or, or rather banks of a, of a river, are now, are now situating informal settlements. So in this case, the water system, which is the Yuske River, has not been adequately dealt with. And that is when flooding occurs, and that is when housing is broken down. So yeah, I think it's, I mean, that is one example, but, it, but we have many examples in, in Johannesburg of untreated water or dangerous water systems. The big surges of water come when it rains, and then you take for granted the infrastructure that needs to be in place when it does rain. So you, we build for all the elements as opposed to moments in time. When you look at being able to maintain a city, you need to be able to maintain stormwater structures. And I think things like that have not necessarily been looked after. The infrastructure has generally fallen 
apart in some places. When you see that, that's when this well-oiled machine, for instance, is no longer well-oiled and you have breaks in and circuit breaks. And a place like Johannesburg is, is especially obvious that these breaks are happening and things like litter and uh, refuse disposal have caught in our uh, stormwater drainage and we are having flooding in the CBD. So I think in terms of water, we can see that our infrastructure is failing us in the CBD. Afia says she believes all these challenges we're facing in our expanding cities are part of an African renaissance, a bigger opportunity and a new phase in Africa's evolution. We are evolving uh, and the infrastructure hasn't been set up to allow for that evolution. And that is based on the fact that this is new to all of us, you know, and how do you deal with something like a lack of housing or lack of infrastructure for a growing population, especially in a place like uh, Johannesburg, where, you know, this is where jobs are, this is where opportunity is. So that means people will flock to this area. But a place like the Johannesburg CBD now is taking a lot more people than it was originally designed for. It's almost like people are, are, are fighting fires, but are not dealing with the larger issues at hand. And I think that is where it becomes a challenge in terms of infrastructure development, because the shifts are happening so fast. And we really need to find a way to answer the bigger issues as opposed to firefight the smaller issues. The negative effects of concrete are also an issue for Denisha Arnand, who lives on the other side of the country in Cape Town. Look out for her episode also in this series. Denisha is an activist and a conservation manager of a wetland called the Princess Flay. This body of water is surrounded by dense development in an area called the Cape Flats, like an urban lake. Canals were built to manage the flow of water here out of concrete. Even though it is so concrete, indigenous vegetation and indigenous biodiversity seems to be resilient enough to take it on. But I think that the state of the water itself is telling us another story because of how polluted it is and the fact that we can't even swim or immerse ourselves in there safely tells me that as much as the vegetation and the, the rest of the biodiversity is resilient, you know, this this life-giving body, organism, because I feel like water is an organism, is not coping. And how long until our system completely destroys it, or the system that we're currently working completely destroys it, because it's basically hanging on for dear life now. But Denisha found some hope in a resilient project she came across within the city of Cape Town. It's called Source to Sea, and it aims to utilize the river corridors that Denisha is describing, and also to manage their water quality and quantity for the purpose of supporting the region's famed biodiversity, and to ensure sustained benefit for its communities. It's a living water corridor for these built-up water catchment areas. So it wants to link up where water comes from, where water is sourced from, so from the mountains, and open up all those canals so that it flows all the way out to the ocean because at a certain point it stops and the water is going into drains or it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not doing what it's supposed to do. 
So they want to create these channels going from the source right out to the sea. And in doing so, reconnect our freshwater systems within the city, because that's what it would do. But there's so much concrete that I don't know how they are going to do it. Uh, because it takes like multiple stakeholders to come together and actually agree on this as a vision for the city. And then there's also, you know, tarred roads, um, even though we've got gutters and got the flow of water going into our stormwater drains, I mean, our, our rain going into stormwater drains, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going back into infiltrating our water table, into our groundwater system. So concrete has prevented so much infiltration of fresh water into our groundwater system. And so we have all this rain that goes into stormwater drains and goes out into the ocean, instead of going back into the water cycle, the urban water cycle hydro or hydrological system. These obstructive structures that we've created are preventing the water in our cities to flow as nature intended. And so there's so many issues that need to be addressed when it comes to how we treat water as this living body in the city that's not being managed or respected in terms of it being a life-giving <laughs> organism, a life-giving body. The way that we are treating fresh water in the system does not reflect how much we rely on the source as people. You know, there's a massive divorce when it comes to the management of freshwater systems and how much we actually need it and how much it's actually keeping us alive. Back in Joburg, Afia is talking about what it takes to create good architecture or sustainable architecture that considers natural systems above concrete and urgently. After all, the time for change is upon us, according to climate scientists. It speaks to an architecture of a, a humble architecture that works in sync with our environment. And this is something like, for instance, Umshanga, the reed dance in Swaziland. Annually, you have people who are picking these reeds to essentially maintain structures or reed structures. And this is because the idea of these, these structures is that over time, they are supposed to fall apart. It's, it's part of the, the, you know, you continue to maintain it if you live in it, but if you move away from this particular village or this particular cycle, and we're looking like thousands of years into what is the heritage of African architecture, it was a nomadic society. It was also a society that allowed for, for, for just this great connection and understanding and communication with nature. And there was a certain impermanence in that, that, you know, reeds do, they're biodegradable. So they fall into, into the ground and they are buried almost as they need to be, when they need to be. This traditional African vernacular architecture considers the benefits of impermanence of natural biodegradable materials. Combining these with permanent concrete structures might offer striking steps towards building sustainable cities in Africa that consider our water resources. Because of the climate of, of Southern Africa, we have great sun. So a lot of the time, you know, we were creating architectures that were essentially for people to sleep in. Because most of our, our everyday happenings happened outside because we have great weather. And that was very different from what is the Western model of having to have these artificial environments in order for people to be comfortable. 
So from an architectural perspective, we need to rebuild our relationship with nature and climate in order to prosper as people. And that starts with the materials, like reed or concrete, that we choose to build our shelters from. So I think in terms of sustainability, we look at using materials that are going to really fit the function of what the building is doing and how it is living and how it is breathing and allowing a building to do more than just have a certain look. I always have to ask myself the question, when I'm, when I'm creating a building, what am I creating it for? Um, how long is that structure going to be there? And that means, in many cases, it means a sensitivity towards materials. So you don't necessarily have to use one material, but you react and use particular materials to fit the function of what the building needs to do. So I think it can be seen now in 2021 as almost insensitive to just be egotistical about creating one particular material without any reasoning behind it. If everyone does a little bit, then it does, it does eventually create a large shift. We can be the pessimists of society and say, oh, this is an impossible thing to do. But as an architect, you know, I have to be an optimist in terms of believing that we can actually create better, more sustainable city. And the way I will do that is by, you know, taking the responsibility of allowing the buildings that I create to be better when it comes to water conservation. How can I create fittings that allow for a more responsible usage of water? How can I create systems that allow for this building to repair itself, to replenish itself, and to recycle water? Elizabeth Barney is another agent of change. We have to look at sort of the structure of our society. So in some areas, water is not an issue. Access to water is not an issue. In other areas, it's a privilege. And so where access to water is deemed a privilege and not so much of a human right, we see that sanitation infrastructure is very poor and that, you know, having a flushing toilet is unimaginable. As a researcher with Equal Education, the movement of learners, parents, post-school youth, teachers and community members, Elizabeth's work is to agitate the government for quality and equal education through advocacy and research, strategic litigation and youth organisation which ensures that standards of sanitation and water security are met within educational facilities. So learners who have to deal with this lack of resources or, you know, issue of water irregularity or paid latrice on a daily basis have their right to education been infringed on, on a daily basis. They have to overcome a lot of undignified conditions to be able to still compete on the same level as their affluent counterparts in private schools. And this is not right because the the resource we are talking about, the social good that is education, should be equal for all and children must be given equal opportunity to realize their full potential. Elizabeth's passion for bringing water to the people shines a light on some of the bigger infrastructural challenges we are facing in order to secure water for everyone. 
We'll hear all about that in our next episode. I'm Michelle Constant. And I'm Gogule Tumflungu. Thank you for listening. All of our podcasts are available at jojo.co.za. The series was made possible because of Jojo for Water for Life. Find us on social media at For Water for Life and share your water stories using the hashtag Listen to the Water. Because if you do, it can change your life. From the Jojo family to yours, we hope you enjoyed this episode of For Water for Life. Whether you're looking for top quality storage tanks, water filters or other water solutions, Jojo has the product ideal for you. Discover our range at jojo.co.za and find us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram for all the latest product news and water-related content.